0: You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello everyone. My guest this week is Michael Story. Michael is a super forecaster, and this entire episode will be um, about super forecasting and what that is. So if that doesn't mean very much to you yet, all will be revealed. He is also the co founder of Maybe M A B Y dot app. I'll put the details uh, of all of that in the show notes. He's a yachtsman and he is the owner of the most beautiful dog in the world, Laska. Welcome, Mike. Do you mind Mike or do you prefer Michael?
1: Oh, I, I don't have any preference at all. Michael is more common, but I, but I answer to both.
0: I noticed that you are very frequently, um, your point of view is very frequently cited in a book I've recently read um, by Tom Chivers called The AI Does Not Hate You. Um, and I'm actually going to be having an episode on, I'll be recording an episode on super and AI with Tom Chivers in a week's time. And Tom always calls you Mike. So I have got into the habit of thinking of you as Mike.
1: Yeah, actually, he's one of the few people who, who does. <laughs> so, but he's oh. obviously disproportionately influential. So, so it's obviously oh. going to spread.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I think it's just availability bias because <laughs> I, I recently read that book. Um, and to prepare for this book, I read Super Forecasting, the book, which I will put details of in the show notes. And I also many years ago read Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise, But just as a a small pro tip to anybody listening, if you're my age and you read a book and you don't make any notes on it, you will find that several years later, it will be as if you had never read it Um, because I cannot remember anything at all um, of what Nate said about forecasting. It it can be helpful because sometimes it means that you can enjoy a good novel uh, more than once. And you can also watch Nagatha Christie multiple times. Just leave a few years gap in between. You'll forget who the murderer is. But uh, for that, it was not useful. So please do not be like me. Always take notes. Let's see. I think a good place to begin would be um, if you could take us through an example of something that you have been asked to forecast um, in the course of either a tournament or in working for the super forecasters. And tell us how you how you do that, how it works.
1: Oh, that's a great question. So there are a few... Let me think about this carefully. So there are a few things to think about. There's, there's the forecasting that you do as an individual, but there's also forecasting as a system of individuals. So I'll try to include both... Um, So let me think of an example. So uh, yes, I suppose this year, um, obviously, we were all very heavily focused on uh, coronavirus, you know, what else would anybody be trying to forecast this year? And um, we one of the things we looked at was when there was likely to be a vaccine. So let's say that uh, now we know that there is a vaccine, but earlier in the year, it was very uncertain. So if you were trying to work out how uh, when you can expect the vaccine, and when and if you can expect a vaccine to arrive? What would you do? So um, the best way that we have to do that is to take advantage of a few different things. So one thing is the wisdom of crowds. So you would try and get several people together, and you would try and uh, amalgamate their view in some way. Normally, you just take the median estimate of, of of that group, and that's what we did. So we collected a group of people together uh, who had an interest in uh in forecasting this topic and we got everyone together on a call and we discussed it we had some expert uh input actually from Saloni Adetani who I I think you know um uh, yes who, form,
0: former guest of this podcast indeed
1: yeah. so Saloni was our was our uh, uh was there to provide some uh, uh some factual input she knows a lot about this sort of thing um and so then as a group uh we we uh took that information and some of the information that we'd read and we went through a little A series of steps, which is um, which forecasters tend to do when they're when they're trying to make their initial estimate, uh, which is to try and think about the uh, the outside view, what some people call the base rate case, the reference case, the we we often call it the outside the outside view, uh, which is to try and imagine uh, the event that you're thinking about as as one of a class of events, and then try and estimate a general likelihood for that type of event. So if it's a vaccine. Uh, then, you know, there have been lots of vaccines developed in the past. Um, and so we could look historically at how long it took uh, to develop vaccines for different uh, diseases and then try and see how similar those circumstances are to the circumstances we find ourselves in. So you might look at something like, um, you know, annual flu vaccines or development of, you know, uh, a mumps vaccine or any of those type of things. Um, and just try and try and look at how similar they are now they're never going to be exactly the same because the circumstances are always different you know history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme and so that gives you a decent starting point point. and so we're not we're not trying to say we can solve the problem by just looking at what's happened in the past but we're saying that's a really good starting point is this very broad outside view so if we're looking at how long does it take to do a vaccine if you're really in a hurry? Then let's look at historical examples and, and pull some out and start with those. And then you would look at the inside view, which is the very narrow specifics of uh, of the thing that you care about. So if what you really care about now is you know, this one particular vaccine, maybe this has some unusual circumstances, like the fact that everybody in the world is is going to want this thing. So everybody who has any interest in vaccines at all is going to be looking at whether they can contribute. Now, that's not normally the case when vaccines are being developed. Normally, there's not such an urgency and so on. So you would take this outside view, you would take this inside approach where you look at the very narrow specific circumstances, of the thing that you care about, and you would try and work your way inside out. So you might think, what are the specific steps that are required to happen in order for that vaccine to be created? well it has to be developed it has to be tested it has to be trialed it has to go through various regulatory approval processes and then you would look at those processes and try and see how long you think they would take and so the idea is you balance this outside view how long do vaccines typically take to the inside view how long is do you think this vaccine will take and you try and uh, assess that in your mind and come up with an answer that sits somewhere between those uh, things or at least includes um it includes elements from both of those thought processes so you're not trying to get you know you don't want to get too overwhelmed by thinking about the the narrow specifics of the circumstances you're in uh, but you also don't want to uh, to go too broad so it's it's about getting this this uh, this balance uh, uh when you're um, when you're thinking about about these type of forecasts so once you've done that you've been through your um your outside view, your inside view, um, you then want to think about some ways that think we know that thinking can go wrong, so uh, one of the risks when you're forecasting uh, is that you can lose your sense of scope uh, and scale, and that's a really really common problem for for people when they when they start forecasting in particular um, it's really really difficult to uh, to to grasp the scale of things so um, for example, if you were thinking about uh, your your vaccine forecast right when is it going to arrive it is much much harder for people to distinguish between uh, whether something's going to happen in the next three months or say the next six months um, th- th- that that there's a sort of intrinsically difficult things to imagine it's hard to imagine you know the timescale doubling and what that really means we don't really have a good um, capacity to do that most people find that very hard um, and so uh what what you can force yourself to do uh, is to is you you the trick to dealing with that is often to ask yourself to make forecasts at different scales or a different scope so if you were asking when's a vaccine going to arrive that's going to have five million doses you might ask yourself your your forecast for that but then you might say okay what if I were being asked 30 million what if I were being asked 50 million what would my answers be and that helps you, help sort of force yourself to acknowledge the, the the fact that there's a scale element to this. Because otherwise, what happens is you have a general picture of the near future, and you have a general picture of the event that you care about. And you kind of answer for that. And what you're not doing is really being rigorous about the scale of the question. But it's really important to 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 think, is this going to be 5 million doses or 50 million? That That's massive. But we don't really have a, uh, unless you really force yourself to pay attention to it, it's very easy to, to lose track of the fact that there's a 10x uh, difference between those two. So you think about scale. um, And then you might think about some of the biases that you've got to watch out for. Obviously, there are many, many, many biases, most of them aren't very important. Um, Some of the things that can that can catch people, uh, uh, you have got to watch out for at this stage, Uh, we can talk about some of those later, but you kind of think about some of the big ones that can affect people's um, problems in forecasting. And then you would do what, I think, is the most important thing, which is you would write down the opposing case for your view. So as you form your view, I think there's a 70 percent chance that we'll have a vaccine by December. You might have said if you were a pretty good forecaster back in October or or, or September Um, and you would write down why that wouldn't happen. So you would think about all the reasons that 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 things might go the other way from the way you're most confident that they will. And that would be step one the next thing you would then do is to discuss that with other people um you know forecasting on your own is all well and good but the real power of forecasting is is discussing it with other people so when we were doing our vaccine forecast everybody did this process on their own right they thought about the outside view they thought about the inside view they thought about the scale of the of the uh, of the outcome they thought about some biases they wrote down their opposing view and then they shared it with everybody else in the group and everybody else had a look at what they were uh, what everyone else was saying they incorporated that into their own view and then we surveyed everybody again and that second survey uh was the uh, is the kind of final uh, survey of, of of that session so the goal is to try and um uh, uh, i mean the as summarized in the book Superforecasting. but basically we tried to look at every possible way that you can improve forecasting um and then just do all of you know test as many of them as you can and try and combine all the things that that seem to work, uh, and do all of those things at the same time. So get the benefit of the wisdom of crowds, get the benefit of some of these uh, psychological uh, um, interventions that can help individual people make make more accurate forecasts, and throw it all together, and then end up with this final answer um, that it tends to be more accurate. And you know that that's that's where we ended up. We ended up that likely, uh, most likely, there would be a um, uh, a vaccine at the end of this year or the start of next year, and that seems to have been. Um, and pretty reliable.
0: So I want to go back to this um, a couple of, of a couple of things that you uh, touched on the wisdom of crowds thing. Um, I believe that idea comes from a book of the same name, which I'll put into the show notes. And um, it was uh, Sir Francis uh, Galton who originally observed that. People at a fairground were involved in this competition to guess the weight of an ox. And, um, um, when you averaged out all of the guesses that everybody made, they came surprisingly close to the actual weight. So I think the average guess from the crowd was something like a thousand seven hundred and eighty four and the pounds and the ox weighed a thousand seven hundred and eighty five pounds. And in the super forecasting, uh, Book, the explanation for that is that, um, when you have a lot of people making guesses at something, there, there are a lot of different, uh, ways in, uh, to arrive at an accurate guess. Um, accurate guesses all tend to pull in the same direction. So if you have more knowledge of oxes and how much they tend to weigh, if you're a livestock handler, then your guess is going to be kind of tugged in the correct direction. And likewise, if you're a butcher, um, and I believe it was a butcher in Galton's example who actually won the ox um, because he's used to weighing meat, so he had a kind of sense. Whereas if your guess is uninformed or if you're an error, then errors can pull in all different directions. And so there is a tendency for errors to cancel each other out. Some people will hugely underestimate. Some people will hugely overestimate. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah, that sounds exactly right. And um, uh, and and the, the last point you mentioned there, I think, is the important one, which is that the wisdom of crowds assumes that most errors are random, and that's why they cancel each other out, because you're, you're randomly wrong in direction and you're randomly wrong in magnitude. I think a nice way for people to understand the principle there, because I think some people misunderstand wisdom of crowds and they think that we're saying that the majority of people in the crowd uh, have, have you know, that, that most people in the crowd know the weight of the ox, for example. Um, and we're not saying that, you know, the, the, the butcher did, and he was pretty good, and some of these people were pretty good, but most people didn't have a good idea. Um, but it doesn't matter as long as their errors are random and cancel each other out. And you can see that, actually, um, the, the nicest uh, demonstration of that, I think, is uh, on uh, the quiz show Who Wants to be a Millionaire? Where they haven't asked the audience uh, option. so if you if you get stuck, I don't know if you know you've seen it, but um, the, if you're you're asked a question and you have four possible answers, uh, and if you get stuck and you don't know the answer, you can survey the audience and and get them to to uh, vote for the option that they think is most likely correct. And what you see there is that most of the time they do return the correct answer. The audience returns the correct answer in the sense that the most voted for answer is the correct one but the majority of the audience generally don't pick the correct answer. But uh, because there are four answers, there are one correct one and three wrong ones. um, If people don't have any idea, they randomly pick one of the three wrong ones. And uh, so the correct answer ends up with a random assortment of wrong people who happen to pick the correct answer by just by random chance, plus the people who did know the answer, who might be a small minority of the audience. um, And then uh, uh, and that's enough to make that the most popular answer. So we're not saying that the majority of people in the crowd know the answer, just that there are some people who do, but you don't know who they are. But if you survey everybody and you assume that the people who don't know are randomly wrong, then this is a way for the, the people who do know to kind of float to the top and be visible. And the danger of that, though, is that if you have a, a bias, uh, then everybody else isn't randomly wrong. And you can see a great example of that on You Wants to Be a Millionaire, uh, one of the questions I saw, actually, I was watching the, um, uh, the major Charles Ingram <laughs> uh, drama, but one of the questions that he was faced with uh, when he was on the show, uh, the, the, the the guy who was convicted of uh, defrauding the the, the program, um, but one of the questions he faced was, um, which uh, city did Baron Hausmann uh, design or have a role in designing or whatever and um, uh, and, so if, and one of the options was Berlin. Now, of course, you know, the answer is Paris, as I gave away, unfortunately, earlier. but um, uh, the guy's got a German name. So you would think that Berlin might be the answer. And the danger with that then is if you do ask the audience on a question like that, then you don't get the right answer because people are not randomly wrong. They tend to collect into a kind of wrong answer that is, um, that, you know, that has a little bit of a red herring. So when there's a red herring or there's a kind of obvious wrong answer or there's some you know there's some non-random error that people are making the wisdom of crowds is is less helpful uh, uh than it than it is when you have a pure estimate like guessing an ox you're as likely to go too high as too low
0: yes i think um um the inside versus outside view i just also wanted to highlight that before we get on to biases and accountability in particular which i really want to talk about there's a lovely example of why you should take an outside rather than inside view as, as your beginning, as, as, um, I think, um, in the book, it's referred to as your kind of anchor number, the base rate, how likely this type of thing is to happen. And, uh, the example is, um, how long does it take people to get a particular task done? Employees, for example, or in my case, since I'm a, professional copy editor how long does it take writers to complete an article and absolutely every writer will will give you an answer that will be off everybody will tell you that it will take them much less time to complete their article than than it will actually take them because every person thinks of themselves as the exceptional case and I think experiments have shown that even when you confront them with their own past record and you say, well, every other article has taken you six months to write, um, or an article doesn't take that long. Let's say a book chapter, every other book chapter has taken you six months. Um, but you still think this chapter will only take you one month. They're still adamant that they are the exception. And there's a lovely, um, I can't remember who the guy is who came up with this jokey sort of um, formula that you can use to tell when a piece of writing will actually be finished. He said, take the writer's own estimate, double it, and then go up one order of magnitude in time. So if someone says it will take two weeks, it will take four months. (laughs) And presumably, if they say it will take a year, it will take two centuries, (laughs) which which sounds about right to me.
1: yes well that that's a good example of kind of overweighting your inside view and 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 yeah that part of that can be self deception or optimism or whatever it is and uh in general uh people are much better served by taking being very strict about taking the the inside view uh the the outside view rather and kind of lowering their confidence in this in this kind of inside uh, idiosyncratic uh view and and you see that a lot i mean um that I mean, the example that we always see in uh, in forecasting is things like politics, right? Where if you if you ask somebody about, uh, let's say, how likely is the the prime minister to resign at any period, whatever prime minister you ask about, the outside view answer would be to say, well, start by looking at how long the typical uh, the the typical occupant of the role of prime minister lasts in the job. How, how what it, what is the what is the normal range for that? What would you expect to see, and then look at the specifics of their situation. But it's very, very hard to do because if you ask most people that, they will immediately start telling you about the, you know, the very narrow specifics of of the prime minister's situation at the moment. Ah, oh, he's alienated this person. Um, he's got support from these people, and these things sort of sound very important. But uh, if you go, if you're looking back into history, um you don't actually have that information about your about the typical prime minister maybe all of that applied to other prime ministers who didn't resign or 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 who did resign in last long time so th- this this danger of over applying the specific information that you have when i was a student i worked for a film company uh, and the average time it took to make a feature film was about 2 years and um in that period we uh, i remember working there and i remember having meetings where people would say ah, but we've got, you know, the latest production techniques and we, we're going to have a much more efficient production and we're going to, um, you know, our film's going to be ready early. And and they all knew that the average was two years, but they would say, ah, well, well that average doesn't apply to us because we've got all of these advanced uh, management uh, techniques that are going to speed up our our production. And, of course, what uh-huh. they didn't know <laughs> is that all the other film companies also had all of those techniques. And so they thought that they were, you know, that this was unusual, but actually it wasn't very unusual and it was actually pretty typical. And you can kind of see something similar to that in the early coronavirus forecast that I've noticed um, in some places uh, where, uh, you know, people would set tremendous store by some, uh, some, you know, in the early outbreak, right? People were trying to forecast what's going to happen in different countries. And most of the time, the outbreaks were pretty similar in, in different countries and those individual uh, idiosyncrasies, which, which is not that important in the in the general scheme of things, people would say, "Ah, but you know, we have this, and that's going to affect our our outbreak is going to go differently." But once things got going, they tended to unfold in a pretty similar way.
0: So let's talk about some of the other biases that might make it difficult to, um, to to make um good forecasts. So in uh one one thing that I um one place we might start is um, with the idea of the foxes versus the hedgehogs. The hedgehogs, so it's foxes have, foxes know a little bit about many things. This is a a a, um, a famous statement from I can't remember who, um, whereas hedgehogs know a lot about one big thing. So that's one bias is this kind of, being influenced by big issue thinking, having one single explanation for everything, how does that work, and what other biases do you do you see affecting forecasting ability
1: well that's interesting so so yeah the the fox the hedgehog and the fox concept is is um is is quite a useful framing I think for thinking about who is likely to be a good forecaster um and one of the problems that some people have had in forecasting is that they have one big thing that they care about, and they try and link it all back to that thing because, really, they just love that thing and they love talking about that one thing, and they want everything to be about that. And I, I'm sure we can both think of of people who, who have you know fixed on something that they really care about, and 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 that's what they really want to talk about, and every everything sort of comes back to that when, um, when they're. When they're thinking about anything, including trying to forecast, um, and that's not very helpful. It's generally pretty helpful to have a have a, a sort of wider perspective. But it's also um, interesting. I think the value of the generalist in forecasting is is really um, is really important. So um, when you look at um, organizations that try and make forecasts, what they typically in the past have had quite um, siloed staff. So the typical government agency that makes assessments would have had, you know, a Europe desk and they would have had someone who ran the Europe desk and that person would have people that looked after individual countries reporting to them. And so if you wanted to say, you know, what's going to happen in Poland uh, in the next year, you would ask the Europe desk person and they would uh, commission the Poland person to report back to them. And so you would get a very... um, you know, it kind of creates that inside view problem again, right? You're you're hearing from the Poland person about Poland. Well, that's very helpful, and it's very good to have people that know a lot about a country to tell you about it. But if you want to get the best forecast, you would get considerable advantage from having people that know nothing about Poland, but maybe know something about other countries. Because let's say the thing that's most likely to happen in Poland is, you know, I I don't know, uh, there's going to be some... Unusual political situation, or I mean, I just picked Poland off my off the top of my head, and I don't know enough about it to pick a good example. But I mean, that, you know, some unusual political situation, which you know they've had a few in Poland over the last few years. So, some unusual situation that maybe hasn't happened in Poland before, but it might have happened in another another country, and somebody who has um, has experience of other countries where that thing might have already happened can provide a very useful perspective um, and if you put them together with your Poland person so they can translate their experience of that uh, of that event happening somewhere else into the Polish context you're going to get a much 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 more useful forecast uh, into the future. So um, the, the Fox thing I think is sort of helpful but I I, I think that the, the ideal thing is to have a whole group of foxes. It's to have lots and lots of people who who have a, have different perspectives and get them together. And that's the real value of having this little bit of information about lots of things. It can be really, really, really helpful. And, you know, I can think of so many examples from my experience forecasting where that was hugely helpful, was was having people with a totally different, um, on paper, useless experience. So it's totally unrelated to the situation at hand. But in fact, um that that information became much more generalizable and was much more useful outside of its uh, its traditional bounds than I think people realized. So somebody who knows a huge amount about Russia um for example probably would have something quite useful to say about Vietnam uh, not you wouldn't ask them exclusively, uh, but it's it's definitely worthwhile having them cast their eye over things and traditionally in a lot of government agencies that didn't used to happen very much people didn't tend to... To sh- to circulate things, I understand there's reasons for that. You know, security and so on is important as well. Um, but if you want to just get the best forecast, the important the important thing is to have this diversity of backgrounds and perspectives and so on, and and all of that can really feed into uh, into your future. So uh, that's not quite so much a bias, but I think um, there's there's the kind of danger of of, of over narrowness and and siloing, uh, which I think is illustrated by that hedgehog and fox um, uh, idea. But in terms of some of the psychological stuff, I mean. Um, the things that are very helpful uh, uh, to avoid, the big one, as you mentioned uh, earlier, is is sort of anchoring. And, and that's one of the things that we try and avoid with uh, taking the outside view. So the danger is that you, uh, you kind of arrive at a number early on, uh, somehow, and that number becomes quite fixed and important. And it's hard for you to give up that number or to adjust it. Or when you do adjust it, you adjust away from that number. And you, you it starts to kind of Um, become overly significant and overly important to you in your thinking, uh, just because it happened to come first. Um, And that's obviously quite unhelpful. When you're trying to make a forecast, you want to assess everything fairly, you don't want to overly privilege the thing that you heard first. But it's really, really um, hard to avoid. And that's one of the reasons that we always counsel people when you're forecasting to look at this outside view first, because it's sort of inevitable that you will privilege the first thing that you hear. So you might as well try and make the first thing that you hear, the most important thing, uh, anyway, because you're already going to treat it that way. Why not, you know, lean into your to the, you know, go with the grain of your of your brain and um, and try and work with it rather than try and fight your own your own instincts. So that's one that can be an issue. Um, one that is very common problem, particularly for governments, um, is is a quite a well known effect called the conjunction fallacy, which is a little bit controversial. But the the concept behind that is that. Uh, when people are presented with a conjunction of information, several pieces of information about, about, um, about an event or about a a person in the original example um, uh, that is very specific uh, and therefore is actually less likely, right. The more specific it is, the more, you know, the the less likely that thing is to be true. Uh, People will overweigh uh, the significance of that information and end up thinking that that, that thing is more likely because it has all this specific information. So, the example from the original Tversky and Kahneman uh, paper uh, was, uh, which people may be familiar with, uh, uh, is, uh, Linda, the feminist bank teller. So they, yes. which is example. yes, Very, very well known, uh, uh, where people were given, uh, information about a fictional character called Linda, uh, and, uh, uh, that kind of pointed to the idea that she might be, um, uh, you know, a progressive uh, in, in politics and, and things like that. Uh, and then asked, uh, uh how likely is it that Linda is a, a bank teller and a feminist. In in that was one version, and the other version was, how likely is it that Linda is a is a bank teller? Now, of course, uh, it 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 has to be mathematically more likely that Linda is a bank teller than Linda is a bank teller and a feminist, because not all bank tellers are feminists, uh, and therefore uh, feminist bank tellers are a subset of bank tellers. Um, but uh, that is not always how people will respond, uh, and. I think there are you know, a number of theories about why that is. The one I find quite plausible, certainly when this applies to forecasting is that, that um, all that information is doing a lot of work for you. It's making it easy for you to imagine that scenario and you confuse the ease of imagining uh, for it being more probable. Um, and there was in fact a, um, I'm not sure, I can't remember if it's in super forecasting book or not, but there was, there was an attempt to replicate the, 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 um, that example with um, a group of professional forecasters in the 80s, in the early 80s, uh, who were asked how likely it would be that Russia and well the USSR and the United States would suspend diplomatic relations for any reason. That was one version of the question. And the other version was that they would suspend diplomatic relations because the Soviet Union had invaded Poland. And this was in the early 80s when, uh, uh, you know, the, the you know, the things were relatively unstable in Poland. And that might that could have been something that could have happened. So um, and what happened was that the, the forecasters rated the Poland scenario as being more likely than the statistically more likely uh, uh, suspension of relations for any reason. So um, there was this is a sort of consistent problem in forecasting that where people build up this specific scenario it necessarily has to be less likely because it's so specific all these things have to happen for the scenario to occur it's therefore not very likely Uh, but people tend to think that that situation is very likely because a lot of that work's been done for them that's that's my view is that you know the work's been done for you it's very easy for you to imagine and when someone presents you with something very vague and broad you have to do a lot more work to imagine it. So it feels a bit less plausible and you translate that feeling of, of, uh, of, of, of difficulty in imagining it um, into uh, an assessment that is of a low probability. And that's very common um, it, and it's really hard to avoid. And often the only way to avoid it uh, is to kind of force yourself to recognize it. So if you're making a forecast where you're being given some specific information, again, taking that outside view, trying to be as broad as possible and making a new assessment uh, off that very broad scenario allows you to see whether you are falling victim to that um, to that bias.
0: Mm. It might be helpful to show how um, how fallacious the assumption that Linda is more likely to be a feminist bank teller is. If you ask some question like, um, let's say, how likely is it that um, how likely is it that Linda has a boyfriend? And how likely is it that Linda has a boyfriend with blue eyes, not knowing anything about Linda's preferences and eye color if she has them or where she lives or anything else about her? And then I think you can very easily see that it's more likely that she has a boyfriend with whatever eye color than that she specifically has a blue eyed boyfriend. So maybe that's a a helpful way of looking at it. I wonder though if in that case um what's happening is might also be something slightly different which is described um with different examples in the super forecasting book and maybe you can give an example for us um which is this switching of uh, fr- if you're asked a hard question rephrasing that question is an easy one and answering the easy question instead without even realizing that you've done that so in this case the hard question is which is more likely statistically likely linda is a bank teller or linda is a feminist bank teller and people hate statistics and it breaks our brains the brains of normal people like me and so we um we surreptitiously in our brains in the confabulation that's going on there we surreptitiously swap that question for the question which is more likely linda is a bank teller or linda is a feminist but that's not the question that was asked but that's the question that we kind of answer in our minds
1: yes that's true i i think um there is definitely an element of that and i think you can see that when you see new people forecasting that there is a, always a temptation to do that. So, and that's something that you particularly notice with scale, for example. So, when we talk about the vaccine forecast at the start of the, the, you know, today, we um, were thinking about a five million doses, five million doses of vaccine versus fifty. That is a huge difference. But the temptation is always if someone said to you, "How likely is it that there'll be a that there'll be five million doses administered by this date?" that the question that most people will answer and i think i would include myself in this unless you catch yourself is you think will a reasonable number of doses be administered and you don't really think about the implications of that 5 million so you you would you would replace that with are some people going to be getting a dose of the vaccine you don't really think about the you know what does it actually mean for 5 million people versus 10 20 30 40 and you can only do that by forcing yourself to be precise and asking yourself parallel questions either side which 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 change some of those variables the only way really to see if you're noticing those things um is to is to design is basically ask yourself the same question again but change some of the variables and see if your answer changes if your answer doesn't change uh, you may have a very good reason for that, but if you don't have a good reason for that, then that shows that you're not really paying attention to that to that component in the question.
0: Yeah. Another thing I noticed, another thing that was really highlighted um, in the Super Forecasting book, and which I had never thought about before, is that one of the important things in forecasting, in enabling people to make better forecasts, is accountability and it seems to me that there are i mean there are various ways in which we elude accountability one is in pundits who make very vague forecasts like it is likely that something important will happen you know i very frequently hear people saying something like that and that's just that has really no more predictive value than your horoscope which says you know Pisces and Libran's look out for some change to your life happening in 2021. Um, and it's, it's not falsifiable. Um, but the other problem is never actually putting your money where your mouth is and saying, okay, this is what I believe. And then getting some kind of feedback on whether your belief is correct or incorrect. It's something I, um, I discussed um, on a previous podcast episode with um, Heather Hying, it's that we very rarely get direct feedback for our beliefs. So Heather thinks that one way to promote better, clearer thinking is to have to um, undertake some physical project or task. Because, for example, if you're baking a cake, your belief as to whether you've put in the right proportions of butter, flour, sugar, eggs, etc., is going to be tested by the results. Does the cake rise? Does it taste good? Does it hold together? Can you get it out of the spring pan? All those kinds of things. There's a simple way in which you make a prediction and then you see whether you're correct or not and that enables you to make adjustments and it motivates you to make more accurate predictions in the future because if you are if you decided to wing it rather than following the recipe for example and your cake was inedible then you know you are motivated to change something you're doing whereas a lot of forecasts um a lot of the kinds of predictions that are made by news readers and pundits and journalists and politicians there's no testing that goes on and there's no accountability because either it's not falsifiable in the way that a cake it, the cake recipe is falsifiable it could go right it could go wrong nor is there any real incentive for correction because yeah. Could you say more about that? Could you say more about accountability and how you how you create accountability for forecasters? And maybe explain to us the Breer scores and how that works. Or is it perhaps Brier or Breer?
1: Oh, well, I call it Breyer, but I but I um I've heard so many people use both and I keep meaning to look up how um how the original uh, person you <laughs> pronounced it, but I never have. Um Uh, yes so accountability is very important well so our motto when we're forecasting is keep score and that is really the most important thing because as you say you can have a vague sense let's say you know you're baking a cake and you have your ideas about how much you know how many eggs and sugar and things you'd put in the cake well you unless you eat that cake uh, and keep notes and see it is very very easy to fool yourself and think into thinking that you're improving when you're not or that you are um you know that you, you know just to just forget about cakes that went wrong or, or whatever it is I mean actually it's funny you should use cooking as an example because I think that's actually true about people who write about food because there's famously uh loads of recipes that say that you can cook an onion in five minutes and you just can't and that is a consistently wrong thing that appears in loads of recipes and if you made those people writing those recipes cook the dish uh and write up what they actually did it's guaranteed that they would never have cooked an onion in five minutes because it's not actually doable so like, oh yeah brown an onion in five minutes is the first step in the dish you can never do it. it always takes longer but they but there's no reason for them to stop saying it because they're not they're not actually you know there's no penalty for Uh, being over optimistic about onion cooking time so the um so that yeah the most important thing really not just for your for other people but for yourself is to keep score because once you start to if you start to take forecasting reasonably seriously uh you will just begin to fool yourself it is impossible to mentally keep track of how accurate your forecasts are whether they're getting more accurate or not you you just can't do it uh and um the temptation is always just to count your hits, ignore your misses, all that sort of thing. So, if you are trying to forecast, the most important thing that you can do is keep score, and there are lots of different ways to do that. I mean, I've, I think people talk a lot about the the Brian score uh, because um, that's a very simple method. Uh, what that is, that's the same as the meteorologists uh, use, and they tend to be pretty well calibrated. And the idea is, it's a it's a squared error score, so it it returns the uh, your score. Uh, it's like golf, right? Higher is worse. And it's the square of your error. So the idea is the more confidently wrong you were, the worse your score and the harder it is to get back to a good score. So if you if you make one confident wrong prediction and one confident right prediction, they don't cancel each other out. You are punished more for being wrong than you're rewarded for being right, which is the, which is the concept. So the idea is that um, the behavioral response to that type of scoring uh, is to kind of punish overconfidence. Basically, because that's that's the kind of that's the more common problem that that people tend to have. Um, so there are different scoring methods, and there's a lot of debate about which ones to use. Uh, mostly because the thing that we care about is is that the score helps the forecaster improve. And so there are lots of debates about which type of scoring is most motivating. Uh, but most people settle on Brier score as being a general, a good general purpose scoring rule that helps people improve. But the important thing is that it's a proper rule, which means you can't game it by doing anything other than giving your your best estimate. So you don't have to worry about scoring. Your job is to make your best estimate of the probability of the event occurring and give that estimate. And you can't uh, there's not there's no advantage to be had by trying to kind of tweak your answer in, in some way or other to to benefit yourself that you 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 just give your best estimate and that's that's the, the thing you should submit so it saves you some time worrying about scoring because again the last thing you want if you're running a forecasting system is to have your forecasters trying to maximize their score at the expense of giving you their best estimate so um so that's what that's what we use the squared error uh, score of uh, of briar um, but yeah the, the the most important thing is is keeping score. And I think when you look at institutions that produce bad forecasts, um, people say, oh, how can they be so incompetent or how can they be so, so bad? Why didn't they do this? And the answer is there are basically very few consequences most of the time for making bad forecasts. Um, there isn't really a lot of reward for making good forecasts. So it's easy to make fun of them. But most of the time, the worst thing that happens to you is somebody makes fun of you if you make a bad forecast. There isn't really, you know, we don't actually mind that much when people make bad forecasts and say so they will continue
0: to make them. We should make them bet money every time they make a forecast. If You're well, going to forecast this thing. You'd better put your better put some cash on it. Otherwise, just say you're unsure.
1: Well, I think that's that's a nice thing, uh, but they won't. You know, they won't do it. So um
0: yes of course unfortunately i'm not in charge of the universe
1: (laughs) (laughs) indeed i mean it's it's very difficult but i think i but i do think that there is a danger because i think most if you say look pundits you know just talk nonsense all the time they're trying to be get attention or whatever i think most most people would agree with you and say yeah of course that's true of course that's true but then when they're in a crisis and they're presented with something like that, it is, you know, I think we've seen that with the coronavirus stuff, there have been some really, really terrible forecasts from people who, who have been very influential and continue to be influential, I think because they're saying what people want to hear, the audience you know, is not that well calibrated. I mean, I think this is one of the things. I mean, our project, um, you know, which came out of the intelligence community uh so it was a uh you know run with with that sort of um uh, view in mind right we 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 started as part of the um uh you know we, we part of that intelligence community uh, forecasting tournaments and um the focus there of course is making more accurate forecasts but if we want forecasting to be a force for good in the world it's not enough to make accurate forecasts you also have to help people identify bad forecasts and you you know the consumer of the forecast has to um has to be reasonably well calibrated, otherwise they you know they pick the wrong person to listen to they don 't you know they 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 won 't do things, and so you end up with people with consistently horrible track records uh you know being listened to over and over again because they 're saying something comforting or provocative or you know they're providing some other value other than accuracy
0: I think it's also a problem that when everyone suddenly has bad track records so if you um If you are looking to certain institutions to make accurate forecasts, and they are consistently wrong, then you are left in the situation where you either don't trust anybody, or depending on personality, I guess, and um, maybe social influence and things like that, you may start listening to some cranks. And I noticed this happening in real time over the course of this year, the World Health Organization losing huge amounts of credibility because of their uh, U-turn on masks, which was never presented as an updating of priors. If it had been presented as we were wrong about masks and here's why, we've revised our opinions on getting new evidence, then I think that they, they wouldn't have lost the same credibility as as many people lost by just telling people in March that they were stupid to wear masks and then telling them in August that they were stupid not to wear masks. Um, and I think that the damage that was done was not just to the credibility of the, um, of those institutions, but the damage was in Giving people a sense that there is no benchmark for measuring cre- uh, credibility, and therefore, what Alex Jones is saying may be just as relevant as what Dr. Fauci is saying.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I so this is something that I've debated with my colleagues at some length. Actually, is um whether those institutions have lost credibility, or 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 where they have lost credibility, like with, with whom? I think. I think with people who are, who make a lot of forecasts and think about forecasts a lot, right, that is not most people. So I think among those people, those institutions have taken a real battering <laughs> reputationally. Um, I mean, I remember that the the WEF um, uh, Pandemic Preparedness Index, which you may have seen floating around. Which I think had some of the worst-performing countries right at the top. They were expected to perform best under a pandemic. Um, You know that obviously that a lot of people were making fun of that early on. Um, But I don't know whether that that credibility loss is too widespread. I don't know. I I I would. I mean, I I can't can't prove it either way. I haven't seen any polling. Um, I'd be very curious. I I don't know. The thing I find very. I do find weird about it, though, is that is, there, is a, there are still some people kind of trying to fit things into this mold of, um, you know, the institutional view is correct, and anybody who is against that view is wrong, and, you know, you, you you're not entitled to have a view. And I think that there are lots of examples where alternate systems for producing information have proved themselves superior to the kind of 20th century legacy systems that most of those institutions are based on. And I think that you can definitely draw a line between the Good Judgment Project and, um, and the IARPA forecasting world, uh, which, which did sort of outperform um, the existing government institutions on, on forecast accuracy. You can see that um, there's other stuff, again, coming out of the, uh, the military in the US. There's a new project um, run by DARPA called SCORE which stands for something, you know, it's a backronym. they always have a nice acronym, but which I can't remember. <laughs> but the concept of SCORE uh, is to assess the uh, likelihood of scientific fraud, or maybe not fraud, but you know, malpractice in some way, um, and identify problems in science. And again, they use the same sort of methods as the Forecasting Project did, which is to recruit random people off the internet and assess their ability to uh, spot problems and spot things and put the best people on teams to work together and that that format seems to work really well you can take very good generalists who are smart good at understanding things good at assessing things and are kind of emotionally uh, detached enough that they can assess things with a with a you know a cool head um and they can spot some of these big problems uh, and i think that you do you know that you do see a lot of um Uh, angry responses from institutions from the you know the world health organization from public health bodies and stuff in western countries at least um who are who want very much to hang on to that prestige and hang on to that authority um despite some of the problems but i think that where there have been head-to-head tests like this those institutions have been shown to have real real problems and i think the virus is the next iteration of that so in the last few years we saw These legacy intelligence organisations were out forecast by amateurs using these more up to date techniques Uh, in forecasting. You see in science that uh, again amateurs using better techniques were able to identify dodgy papers, p hack papers, sometimes fraudulent papers, just using you know their critical judgment, and were able to do that you know more successfully than the journal editors who published these dodgy papers. and with the virus, you could see it there, that um, uh, if you were in a Western country uh, uh, and you had a good Twitter feed, you were getting information way ahead of most of the governments in, the, in, in those territories. So I think you can see that this kind of net, you know network generalist, which is something that didn't really exist in the 20th century, but is now enabled by technology, that seems to be the superior model for most of these things. But the difficulty is how do you scale it? And it's, of course... The other, the other thing is the cost. It's extremely expensive to set something like that up. But I think you can see, I don't know, but I don't know how visible that is outside. But certainly from where I'm sitting, um, you, you see that this, this head-to-head competition and it's really not even, not competitive. But I don't know whether the credibility, you know, legacy credibility lasts a long time and, uh, and institutions will have that. And I think for most people, um, they're, they're not really okay with with some of those failures. And I, and I do wonder how many people remember that there was an anti-mask, campaign in the uk for example a government anti-mask campaign i don't know how many people remember that i mean to me it seemed very significant but i don't know whether um whether it was i i haven't seen polling on it
0: yeah i don't know um i mean i i remember it myself because i got into a very a a very ferocious twitter fight that went on for days (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with with somebody who is telling me that it was um, superstitious and non-evidence-based and cranky of me that I was insisting on wearing a mask and uh, um, who is now making videos uh, selling, showing people how to use masks and encouraging people to use masks. And there was never any backtracking. There was never any admission of, you know, I've revised my view, which which I would be perfectly happy with. It was just that entire episode was memory hold. I mean, not just his Twitter fight with me, but that yeah, general yeah. stance. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that it's it's become clear to everyone, to well, to many people, not to everyone. God, I'm making all these. I'm really conscious, having read the book and also talking to you, how much of what I say is just bu- possibly bullshit. It's just my own <laughs> vague impression of things. But I'll try not to get too self-conscious about that because otherwise I won't be able to say anything at all. <laughs> but I am certainly personally very conscious of loss of credibility, both loss of credibility in, in places like the WHO. Um, I, I've seen this, these problems with the WHO's proclamations that being circumcised will protect you against HIV. That's incorrect. I read the critiques of the Ancel Keys seven country study the idea that low fat high carbohydrate diets are protective I I no longer think that there's evidence for that that doesn't mean that I'm an enthusiast for the other viewpoint I just think that, that particular viewpoint has been has not been proven I've also been conscious of The crisis in um, the replication crisis in psychology, um, and various other scientific crises that are going on. And now I very frequently find that I'm reading, um, a book and some statement is made with an appeal to an authority, which I know to have been, or I have heard has been debunked. And I just suddenly lose confidence in the entire book and the person writing it and i feel just completely at sea because i also know that i personally know nothing about anything um apart from tango argentine tango 18th century writers and babylon 5 the um the sci- sci-fi series apart from that i don't have expertise on anything and so i'm just left feeling kind of at sea so uh, yes, last night I'm currently reading Daniel Levitin, who is a an author I really enjoy, um, a neuroscientist and scientific communicator, and he cited um, the book uh, "Why We Sleep." Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, who is, I can't remember the author is Matthew somebody, and um, I have just read and interviewed Stuart J Ritchie. Um, I've just read his book, Science Fictions, and I think that this person's book should always be prefaced now by the phrase, "the completely debunked book by the disgraced author, Matthew so-and-so. And that was, that was put in there in a list of other arguments, which also appeal to other authorities, studies, books, etc. And for me, it just placed the entire thing under um, doubt. I feel very at sea because I think a lot of credibility has been undermined in many areas in which I don't have any personal expertise, and therefore I have to rely on other people's opinions. What advice would you give to people like me who feel completely at sea now? Because um so many institutions and authorities which used to have credibility seem to have lost credibility.
1: Well, it's funny because i've observed the same things that you've observed but my interpretation of those events has been the opposite actually i to me we you know we're we're in a golden era of um of access to information of access to analysis that uh, just supersedes those institutions and we can just get it for free uh, on the internet and i think that the the kind of model that seems to work everywhere Uh, is this sort of networked teams of generalists who just seem able to, to figure these things out, you know, much faster. And um, yeah, my, my reaction is, well, yeah, the, the, you know, the, these institutions aren't very good, but we have our own institutions and they're even better and fantastic. Lucky us, we've got something even better. So that's how it looks to me. <laughs> it looks quite <laughs> positive. We found ways uh, to do that. And I think that the goal for people who do feel at sea and feel like we, we need to replace these institutions is to focus, to look at what has worked. I mean, I think it is very bad. I mean, when I talked about the DARPA program, uh, the SCORE program, I mean, the fact that the military needs to fund research into how to de- detect scientific misconduct because they themselves are suffering from the fact that they were trying to rely on papers that were nonsensical or hyped or fraudulent or any of the things that Stuart would, uh, would take issue with. Uh, and they were finding themselves at sea. At, at that was their response was to say, well, okay, what, what do we know works? We know that taking panels of generalists, applying them, you know, giving them the right incentives to, to target, telling the truth, t- giving us the right information uh, rather than all of the other things that people tend to target when they make statements, and you know we can rely on that information to tell us which papers are likely to be nonsense. I mean, that, to me, that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's great that they're doing that, mm. and mm. that's something that we can all do on a smaller scale. I mean, there are wonderful resources out there. Uh, Metaculus, uh, you know, I rate very highly as a um, uh, which is a forecasting website uh, run by um, some nonprofit um, run by nonprofit who are, you know, a fantastic resource. If you want to see people who are incentivized to make the most accurate forecast, they don't always get it right, but you're at least seeing people who are trying to get it right, uh, which is not what you'd see if you open a newspaper or turn on the TV or anything. So there are are a lot of these things out there. They're free, they're accessible uh, to us. Uh, And um, to my mind, that's incredibly positive. And I'm seeing more things. I mean, that's what in my day job That's one of the things that we help people do is to set up systems like that inside their organization, and we work with a lot of uh, organizations to do that. And so, to me, it's very encouraging. I think it's a shame, and it's it's bad for the world that you see these problems. But to some extent, I think those problems have been there a long time, and they're just more visible now because we we have competing systems that are that are able to 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 highlight how how bad they are and replace them with with better information. So, I think yes it sucks but there are some there are some lovely alternatives that we can invest in uh, and and pay attention to and give our our money and and support to and and those things are are have the cap- capacity to be brilliant um and hugely hugely beneficial for everybody
0: yeah i think that um even just reading the super forecasting book has really Changed my own um, view of things um, and has made me at least more aware of how subjective my um, how subjective my own kinds of predictions and ideas are. What's been helpful to me is just recognizing whether people have tested um, whether there's been a um a control condition for whatever it is that they are. Instituting. So really simple and, and almost literally pedestrian example is the Couch to Five K program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I uh started Couch to Five K ages ago, I think April. And it is now nearly the end of, of the Annis Horribilis 2020. Um and I'm now running for 30 minutes a day every morning. On fairly uneven ground it's a little bit hilly it's muddy it's in the it's i run in a forest um and um but at a very slow pace um so it took me um couch to five k asserted that this would take me ten weeks um and it's taken me basically uh ten months yes. um, So it's almost the same as that estimate where you have to go up one, one, uh, um, go up one time measurement to find the correct one. But I didn't have to double it. So it didn't take me 20 months. And, um, reading the couch to 5K thing, its basic premise is that if you can run for seven minutes without stopping three times, then you will be able to run. 5K without stopping, which takes about half an hour for most people. Um, Their evidence for this is that millions of people or thousands of people, um, I think they're quite vague about the numbers. Many, many people have done Couch to 5K and have managed this. But there's no stats on how old those people were, how fit they were before they started the Couch to 5K nor is there any, are there any statistics on how many people dropped out. And my feeling is that it's relatively easy to get to a point where you can run for seven minutes um, because they do that in small, gradual increments. But if you can run for seven minutes three times, I don't think you can then necessarily run 5K especially if you're starting this in your 50s. So if anyone listening wants to do the couch to 5K method, I recommend once you get to, I think it's week eight or something when you run for seven minutes, just continue with this, try continuing with the same method as before of increasing your running intervals incrementally. Um, Because if you try to run 5K immediately after running for seven minutes, you may or may not be able to, if if you're not able to, you may give up in despair because the app tells you that almost everybody can do this. So it must be your problem if you can't. <laughs> and my evidence for that is my is my my hindsight bias on that is that I was able to I I can now run for 30 minutes a day. So I can now run 5K every day. But it just took me a lot longer. But that's I mean that's one thing this kind of no indicate this policy is successful, but no indication of whether it's the, the particular policy that is successful um, and no indication of what the results would have been if they had not used that policy or if they had done a different policy. So nothing to control and compare against. Are there, are there other examples like that that you see in real life um, where things could have really benefited from a super forecasting approach and that approach has been has not been taken so for example in governmental policy
1: well that's interesting i mean i, I think that the um i don't know so so i have a, I have a bit of a mixed view about this so i i think that there certainly are examples where more accurate forecasting you can make a case that more accurate forecasting would help but when you look at some of the things that you would do, if you were to follow the super forecasting approach rigorously, which means recruit a team of people, get them into the right structure so that they're incentivized to be accurate, score them, monitor them, provide them with feedback, give them the prompts, you know, give them a platform to have you know the, these uh, discussions where they can share views and lots sort of stuff and basically build those forecasting teams you you do end up with much more accurate estimates at the back end. But I think most of the time when you look at things that have gone really badly, a back-of-the-envelope estimate would probably also have been enough. So you you can get more precision by by sort of doing super forecasting, and that's great. But most of the time when you see the big problems, uh, that precision probably, the lack of precision probably wasn't the, The reason that that thing happened and i think that um when you look at this year and some of the things that have gone wrong this year i think it's actually quite hard to make a case that better forecasting would have massively helped i don't know maybe maybe i'm too uh decline minded right on that front but but i but i think that um i I wouldn't want to just, you know, prescribe more accurate forecasts as a sort of panacea for for the world's problems. <laughs> because I think a lot of the time, things go wrong for other reasons, for managerial reasons, for emotional reasons, you know, people get upset or frightened or embarrassed, and then they do, they make terrible decisions because of that. But it's often not because they didn't have the right information. Mm,
0: mm. Can you give me an example of how a back of the envelope calculation? Is this This is the thing that is more formally known as Fermi estimation. So for example, the technique you use to work out how many piano tuners are there in the city of Chicago, I think was the famous example. Am I correct?
1: Yes, yes, indeed. That's right. Yeah. So you would say, ah, so if you wanted to do that, right, the famous example would be, well, you would try and work out, well, if you know how many people there are roughly, and then you think about how many households there might be. So, you know, what's the average number of people in the household? So how many households do you have? And then you might think, well, how many households have a piano and how often do they tune the piano? And you kind of break that whole estimate down. So you could just say, what's the answer? Yeah, What do we think? How many piano tuners do we think there are whose full-time job is uh, piano tuning in Chicago? Uh, Or if you break it down into lots of smaller observations. And the the kind of principle behind that is that you are – kind of increasing the size of your own crowd. So if you're on your own, and you make 10 estimates like that, so you build a whole chain, and you make 10 estimates, you might overestimate some things, underestimate others. But the sort of principle is that you if you make some random errors, then they might cancel each other out. And at the end of it, you might end up with a more accurate estimate than if you just went for it at the top where you might have been, you know, randomly wrong, and 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 there's no correction for that. So part of the reason that people like the Fermi ideas is is that they uh is that you you're sort of increasing the wisdom of your own crowd and there's a, and and that also works in other ways right so um there are some interesting uh, studies looking at uh, forecast accuracy when people did things like made an estimate and then they waited a week and then they didn't think about their estimate for a week and then they made another fresh estimate and then they took the average of the two and the average tended to be better than, than, than either one over, over time. So, um, uh, and what you're doing there again is, you know, you're, you're trying to account for some of the random mistakes that you make by increasing, giving yourself a kind of, um, a pseudo crowd, uh, <laughs> I guess, um, and, uh, uh, trying to kind of mimic the, the, the value of that crowd. So there are some interesting things, but I, I guess what I more meant by the back of the envelope thing is that, um, you know if we had been forecasting vaccines back in uh september if you and i had been doing that and i had said that i thought that there would there was a 80% chance that there'd be 10 million vaccines available in january and you had said that there was an 85% chance there'd be 10 million vaccines available in january in the uk for um you were more accurate than me uh in the sense that well you would get a better score than me you're not necessarily more accurate but i mean you would get a better score than me for that forecast but to someone making a decision about what trade-offs to make about the virus in september either of those forecasts would basically have been good enough because you you would have been saying it's most likely that this is the case and the actual the, the the level of confidence when you get down to these 5% increments is important for forecasters to aim for. But I think in terms of decision-making, it's good enough to say that's the most likely outcome.
0: Right. Maybe it's more that if more people were trained in, in super forecasting, um, it would help people to develop um, and to value the kinds of, um, psychological characteristics that make it more likely for us to, to achieve accurate information about, about the world and to give, to formulate good policy or to find methods for finding or to favor methods for finding out which policies would be good. Um, because we would value, for example, um, diversity of opinion. Uh, open mindedness being able to revise our opinions on new information this is the kind of bayesian updating thing also not to to be rewarded for being right rather than for being certain um, or for being emphatic or dramatic or um, or for wishful thinking. I think there's a nice little um little summary somewhere here of the, these characteristics that are trained by things like super forecasting tournaments. Oh yes, this is what the author of super forecasting, whose, whose name has been hidden to me by my periodic name aphasia, but um, he says that these are the characteristics necessary. In philosophic outlook, they tend to be cautious, nothing is certain, Humble. Reality is infinitely complex, non-deterministic. What happens is not meant to be and does not have to happen. In their abilities and thinking styles, they tend to be actively open-minded. Beliefs are hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be protected. Intelligent and knowledgeable with a need for cognition. Intellectually curious, enjoy puzzles and mental challenges. Reflective, introspective and self-critical. Numerate. Comfortable with numbers. In their methods of forecasting, they tend to be pragmatic, not wedded to any idea or gender. Analytical. Capable of stepping back from the tip of your nose perspective and considering other views. Dragonfly-eyed. Value diverse views and synthesize them into your own. Probabilistic. Judge using many grades of maybe. Thoughtful updaters. When facts change, they change their minds. Good intuitive psychologists, aware of the value of checking thinking for cognitive and emotional biases. In their work ethic, they tend to have a growth mindset, believe it's possible to get better through practice, and grit, determined to keep at it however long it takes. And that's a fantastic and incredibly rare combination of qualities. Um, And I can certainly see how just the exercise of um, super forecasting rewards and encourages development of those qualities. At least I think it does. I guess you'd have to conduct an experiment with people who are trained in super forecasting and people who begin from a, from a similar baseline who are not trained in it.
1: Well, that yeah, that is a very flattering uh, set of descriptions about <laughs> about our group, and I I would. Leave it for others to say whether they apply to me. I think I aspire, i would certainly say I aspire to those qualities, but I don't know if I always get there. But on the experiment side, though, it's interesting you mentioned that there is a uh, uh, a study ongoing. I don't—I think it's concluded, but looking into that specific topic is whether you uh, you can encourage people to be more open-minded by getting them to. Do, do forecasting whether getting them to to sit and make forecasts and receive feedback and have to try and be right um helps people become more open-minded which is a really interesting question i mean i think it's plausible that it would um the the, the thing i find most interesting about the list of qualities though is is you could summarize a lot of them as you just care about being right and mm. I, I a lot of people if you ask people how much do you care about being right you tend to get two types of people that that would would say a lot. One is the people who would say, well, I think this, and I'm going to try and bully other people into agreeing with me. And that means I'm right. And of course, that's a very easy way to be wrong, but not to have to find out that you were wrong. And Mm. making bets with people like that can sometimes be quite profitable because they don't want to back down. So they do bet and, and you can collect money off them. But um, the other type of person wants to be right in the sense that they want to have the accurate view and they care about the outcome. So you care about predicting the thing that actually happens. And to do that, you basically have to care and you have to be incentivized to care. And if you do really care about that, then of course, you'll be willing to update your view. Why wouldn't you be? Um, mm, yes, of course you would, because that's in your interest. Uh, and um, when someone tells you, hey, here's some information that contradicts your your view, of course you want to hear it because you want to find out am I about to lose some points am I about to lose some money here um I always found that a bit odd uh I remember during the um the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos uh scandal um when uh the uh you know this phony blood stuff and um I remember that There was a lot made of the fact that the investigative journalist who was investigating the company brought his concerns to uh, his Murdoch-owned newspaper. And a lot of people noted that Rupert Murdoch had invested in the company and sort of credited him for not dismissing it because he was an investor. But I always found that a very bizarre attitude because if you've invested in a company that is not doing what they're saying they're doing of course you'd want to know about it why would you want someone to keep that from you of course you want to know hey these people are uh have taken my money and they're not doing what they said they're going to do so i always found that very weird but i but i suppose it illustrates that that view is actually quite rare and clearly rupert murdoch shares it but to my mind it's obvious that if if someone wants to tell you something hey you put 300 million dollars or whatever it was into this company and actually you know they they they're claiming to do things that, that I don't think they are doing uh, then um, of course you would want to know why why else would you you know what else would you want to hear so i find it kind of weird that there are so many people who have the the kind of form of view this like bully people to agree with me but i but i think you're right it depends on the consequences if you're in a system where it basically doesn't matter and your actions have no consequences then a why not you know then actually perhaps it doesn't matter whether you believe wrong things and i think people really worry about that i mean i see that a lot people worrying about misinformation and that seems to be a big deal that people have wrong beliefs or they have some immoral belief or whatever but you know that if there's no consequence to that if they have no ability to influence the world based on this wrong belief then that's probably a cause of them having that wrong belief in the first place because it's never tested And it also perhaps is a sign that maybe we just shouldn't worry about it because they're not going to do anything about that wrong belief. What you must pay much more attention to is people who do have the capacity to influence things. And if they have wrong beliefs about the world, then that's a really big problem and one that we should really focus on rather Mm -hmm. than looking for some kind of extreme, wacky beliefs that somebody who who is not going to do anything about it may may express.
0: Well, I think that the real problem is when there are serious consequences to being wrong but not for the person who's wrong or not in any obvious or immediate way for the person who's wrong so if um so for example a government introducing policy introducing it globally let's say with no way of testing whether the policy is really successful or not um because of it if the if th- things seem to improve it could have been because of something Different from the policy, and maybe they would have improved even more if that policy hadn't been instituted. And if things get worse, maybe they would have got even worse if the policy hadn't been instituted. So there's in the world of politics, we don't have control. We don't have controls for our experiments. And that is a huge problem because I think there's a constant tendency to. Forget the fact that the road to hell is paved paved with good intentions. Um, there's not, we don't rigorously test the actions that we take in politics. And in fact, we, because we are attached to political parties and we give ourselves labels and we look to see whether the policy or the idea fits our label, like is it a left wing idea or a right wing idea or a Labour idea or a Tory idea? Or even who proposed this? Was it Boris Johnson? Well then it's good. If I like Boris Johnson it's bad. If I don't like him, um, or was it Keir Starmer, vice versa? Where we have set up this system where we're incentivized to be to invest our ego Uh, In our opinions, to keep those opinions unchanging on updated information, and to not look at consequences and to not ask whether the actions are actually liable to lead to the results that we would like to see. Do you think that's a fair summary?
1: Yes, and I think that's very common and it's a big problem, and it's a reason why a lot of people can't forecast. I mean, one of the things I find interesting about uh, you know, people take a great interest in our project um, and they would say, well, you won all these forecasting tournaments and how did you do it? How are you able to out-forecast these other teams? How are you able to out-forecast the um, institutional competitors uh, that you were also competing against? And um, the answer is always actually quite unsatisfying. People find the answer quite, Boring, because there isn't a sort of secret highly complex system at play. there's just avoiding a lot of mistakes that other teams and other groups make, and so when you don't do all these bad things, what you do do doesn't look very exciting, right? Think about the outside view, inside view biases, get your team structure correct. But what you're doing by doing all of that is trying to minimize the errors that are thrown into uh into forecasts all the time. Uh, and just try and get rid of them. And so what's left is often quite a simple level of analysis, but it's a level of analysis that you've tried to eliminate all of those corruptions from. So it doesn't actually look that impressive. Um, And I think that that is because it's very, very hard. It's easy in the abstract to say, oh, yes, you must consider something regardless of the source. But of course, it's actually very hard to do that in real life. And some people are more suited to it than others um so when you talk about having controls for policy for example if you're forecasting and you're trying to make an assessment you have teams of forecasters and you want to make an assessment about the future one thing you can do is look for your best calibrated forecasters people tend to be either good at forecasting or bad at it and if you know they're good at it then you know that you can trust more strongly in what they are saying uh, than you can than somebody who uh has uh a poor track record. So there is such a thing as a consistent, you know, the track keeping score over time is very important for the consumer as well as the producer forecast. And people that are particularly prone to these emotional responses to things that lead them to kind of emotional reasoning uh, where there's like a reflexive reaction that is, that is, that is not intellectual, but, you know, just, just emotional. Those people tend to drop out of forecasting competitions pretty quickly because they're just not able to separate that and when you know you brought up the masks uh, thing which was quite interesting uh when there was this big anti mask campaign from the government there were a lot of people who reflexively supported that campaign because they support whatever is an authority and they you know and and when that was anti masks they were anti masks but they wouldn't necessarily have recognized it right they just came to believe that masks didn't work because that was the high status that was the authoritative belief and just as there were people like that. There were people who are reflectively anti authority. And so when the authority says masks do work, they want to f- they feel as though they don't, but they're not analyzing it. They're not thinking about it. It's just reflexive and emotional. And so you can see both of those types. And I think what is so useful and so fascinating about this year is that because these institutional perspectives have changed so quickly, you have a lot more opportunity to observe who is thinking independently and who is just reflexive. Uh because when the institution is wrong, the people opposed to them will be that you know there'll be some people who've thought about it independently and reached a different conclusion, and there'll be some people who are just reflexive and emotionally feel the opposite of whatever the institution feels and so of course, those people are of no value in terms of their contribution to to your you know that there's there's no information coming from them so mm. this this rapid shift in in perspectives actually allows you to spot the people who are consistently independent. And are able to get beyond those things, and who are able to uh, to reason outside of, as you say, you know, who the, who said something or what team it comes from or, or whatever it is, and uh, and actually think about it sort of more independently.
0: I really like your idea. I've been musing on your idea that the loss of credibility suffered by legacy institutions is um, an opportunity. It's like a kind of New crowdsourced enlightenment because it makes it impossible to, um, it makes it much more difficult or less tempting to just allow other people to do your thinking for you and just take things on trust. And that therefore could encourage, um, much more independent and better thinking for ordinary people. So I'm very encouraged by that. I love it. I I think that I the list of of characteristics that I read out that super forecasters have, I think that I'm the exact opposite of all of those things that were described there. But I also had the sensation, both reading the book and talking to you, that – Nevertheless, those qualities are not set in stone. And it is very possible to train one's thinking. And the main thing is to correctly align the incentives to do so.
1: I think that's right. Um, uh, It's um, the most important thing is, is do you care and People can be made to care about things with the right incentives. And so our best hope, you know, if you don't naturally already care about getting things right, then increasing the incentives for doing that is probably the best bet that we have for increasing the population of people who are motivated to do that.
0: Michael, is there anything you have been wanting to say that I haven't given you a chance to say?
1: Crikey. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't no, I don't think so actually. No, this has been very interesting. Very interesting. I I I it's very hard to tell um what of the things you know about are interesting to somebody else, which is why it's so important to have a skilled interviewer.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's I I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um and I highly recommend everybody, if you're on Twitter, follow Michael. Uh if you're wise enough not to be on Twitter, you can still find out about his work at his website, which I'll put in the show notes. And I highly recommend also reading the book "Super Forecasting" and thinking about how you might integrate some of those some of those ideas into your real life thinking. Um, Sapare Audi. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Michael.:
1: uh, Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.